My name's Joanne Averson, and you are so welcome to Series 3 of my podcast. Enjoy. So, hello out there, and I am absolutely delighted to welcome my guest today, who is Michelle Nayeli Bouvier, and she is the founder of the Kutila School of Embodied Resilience. Michelle, welcome, and what does that mean? Well, I'm just first so happy to be here with you, Joanne. And the Kutila School of Embodied Resilience, we'll start with Kutila, is a Sanskrit word that translates as the shape of a three-dimensional spiral, like water going down a drain. And it's also one of the names of Kundalini. And to me, embodied resilience is a term that I use I don't have it trademarked. I welcome others to use it as a way of applying what we now know on the merging of ancient practices with modern science to resourcing and regulating ourselves physically, mentally, and emotionally in really personalized ways. Which says in a nutshell, pretty much the purpose of, I don't know, I think, you know, I wrote my book with that in mind, like how can we kind of grab this knowledge and translate these really quite complex ideas into practical application to build resilience and embodiment and and we all know about spirals. So before we go down any particular rabbit holes, I just want to say that I'm so delighted to meet you. I've heard so much about you. I know Michelle von Stratton in South Africa just raves about you and your work and how much she enjoyed learning with you. And I've heard of you. I don't know loads about you. So I'm going to invite you to tell us a little bit about your yoga journey, because I think it incorporated learning through experience, essentially. Is that so? Uh, Yes. And um, I just want to give some love to Michelle Van Stratton. And I think we are somehow soul sisters. We have a very similar path. And if anyone's listening and hasn't listened to that episode, it's a really beautiful one. Um, I usually say that yoga found me when I was 15 and saved my life in high school in like an emotional way of understanding and valuing myself um, in a world that was a little bit hard at the time. And Actually, my first yoga teacher was this French woman um, who was in a dark room with hardly any light and would just say, relax and lay your head on your leg. And there was, you know, no alignment, no, you know, physical awareness, just about presence with yourself. And my journey took me through, um, you know, getting some activity in power yoga and about seven years, very dedicated in Ashtanga vinyasa yoga Mm. and some injuries that I now understand were sort of set up by repetitive overdoing. And that led me to a more alignment-based yoga, which helped for a while and then kind of increased the injury pattern. And um, my main style that I continue to teach is pranavinyasa, as created by the life work of Shiva Ray, um, in part because it has a whole different whole body interoceptive felt sense approach to teaching alignment. And I am also uh, a student of Kalari Payat, 
which is uh, the South Indian martial art and Ayurveda. And to me, it's it's really all one. Yoga is a path of being and embodied practice can be so many different things. Yeah. And always so unique to the person that's practicing, right? That's the thing that we really need that confidence, don't you think? Yeah. I, I liken it to also playing around with different diets that, you know, if you spend time with one style or one set of rules, you get to know what they do, but don't get stuck with that one set of rules. You might need it for a day or a week or 10 years, but probably there's no one way for anyone forever. Well said, because everything changes over time, right? So our needs evolve. And yeah, and I wanted to ask you, you you mentioned to me earlier before we started recording that some of your um, experience and your own development in your school was through personal injury. And I, I don't know whether that was physical or whether that was what you mentioned just before about giving you some emotional resilience or was that something else? Oh, physical. I had um, a car accident that at the time I understood it as sprained my SI sacroiliac joint and set up a whole lot of pain where I was in my early twenties and I would not be able to sit upright for more than 10 minutes or drive for 10 minutes. And I felt like I would imagine this was what I would feel like when I was 90, but I was like 23. Mm -hmm. And um, the healing journey of that uh, it helped me get out of the rut that I was in. I was a little bit with blinders, like dogmatic blinders on with what I had thought was the one way forever and um, was forced to look into developmental movement and somatics. And I became a, a student of the access syllabus research yeah. community. Um, I also found the hula hoop at that time, which was also a big part of my life. And I think taught me a lot about spiral pathways and, um, you know, that's still, it's still a pattern that I, I have to tend to and work with, but I feel much better. I am almost 45. <laughs> I feel much better than I did 20 years ago. Isn't that amazing when you find a practice that actually enhances the the process of maturation and just somehow brings a gentle resilience? Mm-hmm. I just... I love that when that evolves, because sometimes I think we think that if we're injured, that as we get older, that that's a detrimental process in and of itself. And, you know, aging's not for the faint hearted, as they say. However, I think if there's a practice that you can develop, that you can take with you and modify as you go, you're a living example of how that evolves according to need and inner awareness. Would you say that that is part of your practice now, perhaps more than when you were younger? I know, did you begin with Ashtanga? Is that your first entry into yoga? My first entry was with the the French lady in the dark. Oh, of course. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> but it was, it was fairly close thereafter, although I didn't know what it was at first. Um, but yes, I, I now, you know, I teach in yoga teacher trainings and and I love that. And I really, truly see the approach to life and yoga as a state 
of being in connection on some level, um, ideally with everything and something greater, but at least even our breath and our movement or more connected to our intuition or more connected to each other, or my background is also ecology, maybe more connected to the earth. And so I choose my daily practices. Um, there's always some form of meditation, but the embodied part I choose based on um, kind of an Ayurvedic lens. Like what's the weather? What's my emotional state? What's my hormonal state? Um, and also what do I have to do that day or that month? Do I have a big project? Do I need to like hone movement that creates focus and determination or is it really a time to roll around on the floor with balls, which is also something I really want to get more people doing. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my goodness. It just sounds so much fun. So I wanted to ask you one question about, I know some of your background is somewhat scientific. And so I'm intrigued to know how you bring that scientific understanding, bringing the science and the spirit and the practice together in a way that, that enhances. I mean, I can, I can tell by the way you said it to me that, that it's, it's not conflicting in any way. Yeah. And I love, I love that about you too, Jan. Um, my whole family is really kind of science and math oriented. Um, my sister is a professor of chemistry and I studied ecology and biology and math was my favorite subject. So I have always been a person who wants to figure things out and, mm -hmm if it seems like it can be figured out and I don't have the answer, I will just be a little stubborn until I find it. And with yoga being a part of my life since I was 15, um, it's always been there. And yet it's been a little bit tricky at points, especially living in, in California and, you know, might be influenced by some new age things that are valuable and some that are maybe less. So, I always wanted to find um, the things that we can rely on based on both thousands of years of tradition and experience and just so amazing how our edge of knowledge is expanding so fast, um, how we can take, especially what we're finding about the, the body-mind interconnected. Yeah. You know, we've been taught that from yoga forever, but now neuromyofascia or um, I was listening, I think, to one of your podcasts, and it was neuromyofascia electromagnetic <laughs> superhighway. osseo. That was osseo. <laughs> Don't forget the bone, because we it's fascinating. But but now that I've many colleagues, and I'm not, I talk about them with love, but they're 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 more than colleagues. They're, they're professors in their own right. Then I'm not I'm not trying to put myself at their level. Is what I'm saying. I just sit at their feet, and um, the. And people like John Sharkey, who's a clinical anatomist, you know, like he will guide um, specialist brain surgical techniques and so on. You know, this isn't, you know, welcome to the world of happy dissectors who get to see the human body in dissection. I, I do frequently and I revere and honour and every single time I'm left thinking, oh, my goodness. You know, I'm in awe of the science and I'm also in awe of the fact that everybody I see defies some of the science. Without exception, I have never, ever worked on a cadaveric specimen without thinking, well, that's not what it says in the books. And it leaves you not making the science wrong. It leaves you longing for it to expand its awareness and its detail and its tolerance. And people like John, people like Professor Yart van der Waal, you know, Neil Thies, 
all, all these, I, I could name a, a hundred if I've left you out. It's not because I don't love you. It's just because Michelle is the purpose of this podcast. But every single one of them invites us to look differently, really look differently. And, you know, I was talking to John the other day and, and he was saying the definition of fascia, the technical anatomical definition of fascia is a, a dissectable sheath. Okay. So I talk to one scientist who says, well, bone is fascia. Mm-hmm. It has to be because in the embryo, there are no bones. And yet all the forms that the bones will fulfill are there eight weeks after conception. I mean, you can't get your head around that. It, and that's all soft tissue. It's all fascia. And it behaves as it grows and as it transmits forces and as it strengthens as a very dense ossified fascia. And then I'm talking to Neil Thies, who's a liver pathologist. I mean, hello, whole other thing. And I mean, anything, his new book on complexity theory, oh, my God, it'll blow you away. It's just fabulous. Okay. Fabulous. It's very spiritual, very compassionate, and very brilliant and grounded in science. Oh, my goodness. But he points out that there's, there's science and there's science. What's the lens you're looking through? What's the scale you're looking at? And what conclusions are you drawing? Are they in the same paradigm? And he looked at me and said, what about the dermis? And I said, sorry? He said, what about the dermis? I was like, what about the dermis? He said, well, how can the bone be fascia and the superficial fascia be fascia if the dermis isn't another expression? Mm-hmm. And then you start thinking, well, hang on a minute, this sensory organ, where isn't it? Mm-hmm. Where isn't it? And it's like, okay, okay, is that the science? Well, we're still asking those questions. We've got to catch up with all that research. But you, Michelle, when you're doing your practice, which bit of you isn't part of the ecology of you? Yeah, well, I I love that the way that we're expanding our knowledge is actually creating more connection and that like where isn't it? And it just dovetails exactly with so much yoga philosophy and tantric philosophy where in the tantric philosophy, there's one experience of itself (laughs) that comes through infinite ways and patterns and expressions so that we can experience more of life, right? Those are my words. Those are not like the end all be all words at all. I sit at the feet of my teachers too. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of it is here, right? Our we can we can track the neurochemistry is different every day based on our mood. We can track our hormones are based different on our based on our mood. But we can also, you know, I'm so fascinated about well, how can we? I don't like this term, but it kind of works. Hack. <laughs> I don't like it exactly, but I live near Silicon Valley. You know, um, you know, how can we flip that the other way? How can we know those effects and then make a choice? for the type of meditation um, and how that affects our brain for the rest of the day. For example, you know, gazing at one point, um, like a candle flame, Trataka meditation is helpful for concentration and focus, or um, maybe more of a yoga nidra body scan is less about focus and more about nervous system regulation. Um, and those are very general roles, but that kind of, how can we flip it because it is all one and um, yeah, I love that. 
idea of the skin, you know, um, just the, just the understanding of where is the sensory organ not of how much of us is tuned like an antenna. And I love how you talk about, I took your spine, spinal ABC class, the spine as an antenna and as an instrument and how we see shapes what we find, which is also why it, it, I don't want to say it took us so long, but it's like right now what anatomists are finding is different because in the history of anatomy, in the background of the industrial revolution with a knife cutting things apart and you're looking Mm. for something that you think you're looking for, you know, they were doing their best, but they were taking it into the pieces rather than this, this like, oh, we're bringing it back. Wait, wait, skin is fascia too? Bone is fascia too? Well, when you, when you do dissection and I won't go into it because it's, it's not, it's not the prettiest thing to do. But what's incredible, I don't I don't know if people realize this, but your skin is attached all the way through with skin ligaments. I mean, I'm sure you know that, but people forget. And you're like, what do you mean a skin ligament? Because we can pick the skin up on the back of our hand mm-hmm. and pull it and bring it anywhere. And it's like, well, how can that be attached if I've just lifted it off? Well, that's what's so clever about this amazing liquid crystal matrix is that it can change and it can break bonds and reform bonds as you go. And it's it's utterly incredible. And the, the skin ligaments are visible. They're dissectable. And so why would the fabric of the skin be different? And, you, you know, it's like, hang on a minute. And one thing I do know from working with uh, scientists like Heike Jaeger, Dr. Heike Jaeger, in, um, she's at Ulm University. I don't know if she still is, but she was. And her work about the of the skin and how the skin receives messages and how it exchanges information with the rest of the body. And we're not just talking about neural afferent efferent cell pathways, the, the traditional way that we dissected the nervous system as if it can be separately taken out. And that if you had your nervous system removed that, well, yes, you wouldn't still be here because your brain and spinal cord would have gone as well. But the, the point I think we're making is, is something I say in, in the book about, um, I was teased once really quite, I, I would say brutally, because it wasn't, you, you've you alluded to this in your discussion about being at school and finding it difficult. So I was at yoga school, as it were, and I'd met Robert Schleip and I'd done a lot of work with him and read a lot of his papers. And one of my teachers commented just, oh, was talking about anatomy. And I said, anatomy for me is very emotional. It's not, it's a sensory story. It's not just a story of the locomotor system broken down into component parts. We don't have the parts first and then create the being. We start as a being. We, we, Jörg van der Waal's beautiful words, we begin as a unicellular being from which the parts arise. That's quoting him. And I remember this particular teacher was writing something about anatomy. And I said, I love the idea of our anatomy, our entire anatomy, our entire anatomy as something of a sensory organ of sorts. I said it very, very carefully. And he answered me, just because there's nerves in the fascia doesn't make it sensory. And you're looking at me because with some, you're looking at me sideways, like hello. 
And I wrote, I, I, I got some really some nasty peanuts thrown from the gallery at that point. And we met a little later and he looked at me, I'm never forget. And he said, I think I owe you an apology. <laughs> and I, I remember my words at the time, they were something like, it's a shame you don't have the courage to do that on Facebook where you made the comment. <laughs> and yeah. it was like, you must be kidding me. Do you really think I would make a statement like that without having done shitloads of homework. Mm-hmm. And and I, I was standing in um, at the Belgian fashion conference. I was standing in, um, no, was it in Belgium or Amsterdam? Anyway, I can't remember. But Peter Hoging, who is one of the people that the founders with Robert Schleip and Thomas Findlay of the International Fashion Research Congress. And I said to him, What's the difference between nerves running through fascia and the fascia as a sensory organ? What's the difference? Can you give me a key? Because this, you can imagine, I mean, I I was burned with this question. <laughs> Those of you that can't see us, Michelle is grinning widely and her eyes are wide like a child in a candy store and I waiting for the, <laughs> the day no more. And he said to me, he said to me, have you ever heard the sound of a neuron firing? And I said, no. I, I mean, probably I have inside my body or my head, but I don't know what that sound is. And he said, this is quite remarkable what he said. He said, that it's very, very loud. What does that mean? Yeah, what does that Sound mean? of a neuron firing. So I just, I stood there and he said, it's very, very loud. He said, if every sensory response in your being required to go through the process of the, of the, like, he said, imagine a citadel and there's, there's inside the citadel, there's castle, there's walls to the citadel and deep, deep, deep inside the citadel, there's a castle and the queen lives in the castle or the king lives in the castle, whoever you think of yourself as. And imagine that one of the gatekeepers, and I'm elaborating this story slightly, and I told him I would. Imagine one of the gatekeepers has left his lunch behind. And his someone in his family wants to bring him his lunch and send him a note. Do they have to go through an entire process of going all the way through every single system to get to the queen or the king, the sovereign at the top, to get a signal to come all the way back to the gatekeeper? that it's okay. Don't be crazy. He said you'd be deafened by the cacophony of neurons firing. So we have these gatekeepers whereby Mm -hmm. something comes that only needs to go as far as the gate and the gatekeeper deals with it. And then you go on to discuss hierarchy in the body. And although we also talk about heterarchy in the body, there is hierarchy. And he he left me thinking for months. I mean, I have to say it was the it was the birth of a chapter. But I'm what I'm fascinated by is the idea you speak about sound. And I I wondered if you'd elaborate a little bit on that because have you ever heard the sound of a neuron firing, Michelle? I don't think I have. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it makes me think of before I, I mentioned sound. It makes me think of. Um, disrupted interoception where you can have too much. Mm-hmm. And I think most of our world is a lack of the felt sense 
of listening to their body's messages. But um, I sometimes realize that I might actually be a little bit on the the far end, but I still don't know if I've heard a, a neuron firing, but it's like the princess in the pea. We can see yeah. there's, exactly. there's so much potential information and yeah, there's no, no way we could process it all. Um, so, so sound, um, has been fascinating to me for, for two sort of merging reasons. And again, it's the science and the, and the ancient teachings. Um, uh, my dear friend and partner, Chris Tompkins, uh, researches the roots of a lot of things, but it kind of goes with the roots of embodied practice, the first known text evidence in the tantras. They're um, mostly unpublished and they are very vast. So talk about vast knowledge awaiting discovery, even looking back mm. um, as much as looking forward. And what he's found is that the daily practice of most import to um, these tantric practitioners, which at the time called themselves the path of vibration, the path of mantra, the mantra marga, was a buzzing resonant bija mantra, which if if that's an unfamiliar term means seed, or it's like one sound, mm-hmm. where it would, their words, break through the knots in the subtle body. My way that I teach this um, in teacher trainings is that the sound is clearing our impressions in the nervous system or the way we can understand trauma getting stuck in the nervous system, but it doesn't have to be that intense as trauma to free us of identifying and choosing and acting and moving from these past experiences into a state called yoga, a state of connection or unity with something greater with that life force, that intelligence that is forming us, the self-assembling, as you say, and the sound then produced the movement, the spontaneous expression as if it was shaping the body. So that's all that the texts say. Um, I also am very inspired by um, the work of Emily Conrad, who started Continuum, who merged on this type of thing completely from her own experience in her autobiography, Life on Land, one of my favorite books. Um, She talks about how she specifically never went to a yoga class because she didn't want anyone to tell her a philosophy or a map, but she had so much freedom, body, mind, heart, soul from dance that she started to play with movement on smaller and smaller levels and work with, um, and I'm sure you know this type of work, I'd love to know what you have to say, um, with people with paralysis, where just getting any spontaneous vibration or wave or movement of flow through um, had incredible, miraculous results for these people. And when there was no physical movement, that the smallest wave would be sound. And so the sound was used to break through whatever was stagnant or blocked or constricted or, or maybe again, Silicon Valley's nearby offline (laughs) (laughs) in the tissue and the nervous system to then create those channels of um, communication. So um, that's again, somewhere where science and spirit meet, but um, 
you know, it's, it's also still sort of nebulous. That's so vast. Like, how do you actually put it together besides humming helps calm our nervous system through the vagus nerve? That's also sort of related. exactly how do you, I, I love how you said that because as a, as a student of Surat Shabda yoga myself for the last eight years, just working with sound. And then I also, I studied with, worked with, um, Dr. Carolyn McMakin, who has mastered frequency-specific microcurrent. So I have literally have somebody on my my manual bodywork table, and I put these electrodes pads on them, you know, this gel pads, so there's conducting. And we we put a subtle, subtle frequency, so subtle, it's crazy. It's So if you use, for example, a TENS machine, that works in amps. And how that works is it scrambles the signal. It scram- scrambles a pain signal through vibration. Now, frequency-specific microcurrent is another whole animal. It's millionths of an amp. And what that's about is the discovery of these very subtle frequencies. So a uh, one that everybody's heard usually is the solfeggio frequency. Mm-hmm. And you can literally go online to YouTube and type in solfeggio frequency and it will play back and it, it will calm you. It goes through, I think it's nine frequency, nine different um frequency numbers and each one's designed to work at different levels of the body. One's the cells, one's the um the the ground substance, another one is the higher self that working through it's a whole thing I wasn't expecting to say. So I haven't got it all in my head. But what we're working with is really subtle frequencies. And if you can find the right frequency, and I've done it on my own body, I've done it when I've been out in a restaurant having uh, had a meal that completely upset my stomach, and I've settled my stomach in 10 minutes on the right frequency and equally failed to do so when I couldn't find the right frequency. So you have to learn how to manage that. I've also worked on myself with asthma, but what I've seen the most incredible transformation with scar tissue in the human body as a living fascial response to producing hyaluronin and and secretions within the body. If you get the right frequency, if you get the right frequency, that you can, transformation is just beyond belief. And where that leaves you when it works, you're just sitting there, somebody's looking at you like, was that a miracle? And Dr. McMakin takes this into all sorts of physio situations and some things are time dependent, some things will happen and then we'll go back and you have to work with them. But here's what gets really interesting. If there's an emotional component to a physical injury and you're not getting any results using the physiological frequencies of the condition and the tissue. So say they've, I don't know what, let's say they pulled their back and the back hurts. So you work on back muscles, back structures, spinal, whatever, all physical things, and you're not getting anywhere. Your next level is what's the emotional component going on? And if the client then shares with you how angry they were when it happened or how upset they were, or they were grieving or whatever, the emotion is, Mm -hmm. you go elsewhere and you tune the emotional frequency as well. And that's when exponential magic starts happening. And and this is the point why I'm sharing this and asking you how you feel about it, what your response is. There's this ancient wisdom, you know, what 
you're talking about being translated, ancient texts. You're not talking about something that was written last year or a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago. You're talking about things that were written thousands of years ago. And we are just beginning to work with this subtle medicine through, I don't know how to say this, but there's a, this is Western, I think. This is where West and East don't correlate. In this Western, dare I say, arrogance that we've sussed it all through our ability to use artificial intelligence. So we can't imagine how the ancients knew what they knew. And yet, what are we doing? We're creating magical, mystical miracles in some ways out of their wisdom that's already there and written. I'm not the slightest bit surprised it's unpublished. Well, hopefully it will be. Yeah, hopefully. There's very few people who can read it (laughs) in the first place. It's written in Um, Sanskrit, presumably. It's written in Sanskrit and in a particular script of Sanskrit, and it's hard to get um, enough copies of the same text to see the whole in a critical edition and and such things. So, And then even in the Sanskrit scholarship in the world, to be in that specific world, like Tantra, besides all kinds of other works over thousands of years, is also kind of rare. So there's a handful of of people in that um, little high slice niche. Um, but this, you know, I've, I've said this before, although I'm not in medicine, so I don't always know how accurate or how fast it's happening, but it feels to me, and especially hearing your story with the microcurrents that the sound as medicine, um, from evidence-based real, No, real research, lacking yeah. real research is like the next frontier. And it's, it's interesting when you say you have to get the right frequency. And I often use my metaphor for life is a big soundboard. If you go to like the big concerts and you can go by the soundboard and there's all the little dials and knobs. So the, all the possibilities are there, but it takes such a refinement to to get the right frequency to to get right in there and so it it feels like this place where the science and the mystery are really touching <laughs> because we have we have some experiential philosophical texts and they don't always have the mechanisms or they're really hard to translate in exacting how do you turn the knobs and then finding some of the things that work, but not all the time. And every person is different and every day is different. And I love that kind of thing because it's just the humility that um, I think is really a requirement to be on the forefront in those worlds. And, you know, all of the people who I respect the most, who I consider geniuses are the most humble of, of everything. Oh, yes. Absolutely. They're in awe. And, uh, you know, absolutely. And and I think one of the things, what was it? I'm, I won't get this quote right, but something like it, mysteries be- are miracles until we understand them and then they become science. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to lose the sense of mystery. Mm-hmm. Personally, I love it. I think awe and wonder are, you know, if if you said what are the three emotions I, that are key, I love is a baseline for me, but it would be all wonder and compassion. Mm-hmm. They're just so important, and 
I think they create resonance fields. And have you read any of the work of David Hawkins where he registers the logarithm of resonance of each emotion? No, I haven't. Mapping consciousness. David, it's absolutely brilliant. And he, each word, so like the word hate and the word compassion have completely different resonance fields. And he's mapped and numbered them, but they're logarithmic numbers. They're not numeric sequential numbers. And and that brings me also to the Sanskrit because Sanskrit is an alphanumeric language. So, of course, there's a geometry to everything that that resonance. Yeah, in Sanskrit, the the sort of fundamental idea is that the sound is the is the thing. So the sound that you say is the vibration of the thing that you're saying, um, and that the vowels there are 16, 16, 16, 16, 16, 16, 16, 16 <laughs> vowels, and they're all. Um, considered the power of creation, the the shakti, the the movement, and that the consonants are the shaping of it. And you know, there's other, um, you know, I know in in deep mystic mysticism in in Hebrew language too. There's there's a lot of that. Some some overlap. I'm not an expert in in that. I. I I probably know more Sanskrit than like the average person, but I'm definitely nowhere near um, the expert in that. But the the resonance fields would be, you know, maybe some way to me- that we're measuring that now. Um, and I have a quote that I think you would love that um, T.S. Little, who is an amazing yoga teacher in the States, um, used to say that the need for the mystery is greater than the need for the answer. Very well said. Yeah. I think it's, I think, it, I don't think we begin to understand how much we need to not know. <laughs> well said. <laughs> we need to not know. We, if I, I look over the last three years just to, to ground this conversation and had anybody told us what we were going to experience as a world, as a global village, mm-hmm. we, a, we would have said it was science fiction. B, we would have said, made up our minds about the things that we could and couldn't do. And I say that very carefully because, you know, we would have we would have had emotions of fear. We would have had mind structures of how we should, would, could do it. If only, and I said it was going to happen and you should have done that and all these fights, which happened for other reasons, but all of that. And all this predictive, advanced knowledge doesn't mm. always serve us. The fact that we just didn't know what we were in for. Mm-hmm. No clue. Yeah. That's uh, why for me, you know, every possible way for us to become more resilient individually, at the community level, collectively, that world, you know, and from an ecological perspective, the the web is what's resilient. The whole with all of those differentiating parts in the body too, right? Um, because like you said about the last three years, you know, the world is experiencing faster and greater change than we have ever experienced as a species. So um, our ability to um, stay open and to not go with the expectations and to have options of ways of thinking and being feels really important. And, you know, if we didn't know, if we knew, we wouldn't have curiosity. Mm-hmm. And I think curiosity is, that, I mean, don't you, 
find that every time you get on your mat like you said before you know what's at play today where are the hormones where is the purpose this month do i have a, a large event on that i've got to focus on so all of that shapes the emergent properties of an individual practice mm-hmm. because we don't know what we need to do mm-hmm. and into that we create right mm-hmm. yes <laughs> yes I can't wait to come do a dissection with John Sharkey and you. You would love it. Oh, <laughs> you'd be, <laughs> you'd be, you'd be one of the people. I think I know Michelle. I, forgive me. I didn't predict about another person, but I'm going to put out there. The very first time I was ever in a lab was actually in the States was in Boulder, Colorado with Todd Garcia at the um, anatomical laboratory for anatomical enlightenment. And many, many moons ago. And, I, I, they couldn't get me out of the lab. I was so fascinated by the fascial matrix and the subtlety and the beauty of it and the ubiquity of it. And the, I was just like, what are the anatomy books talking about? You know, this isn't the story I learned. This isn't, this doesn't stop here and end here and start there. You know, anatomy book, you get the feeling that you could cut the origin and the insertion of a muscle and just lift it out of the body and put it on the table. Oh my God, you're joking me. Couldn't be further from the truth. Everything's connected everywhere to everything else. And it's just, it blew me away. And I couldn't, they literally, I remember my friend Shane and Todd saying, Joanne, would you come out of this lab? And I, my whole left hand from holding a hemostat, I had completely irritated median nerve problems for weeks afterwards because I just, I was so grateful to the donors and so stunned mm-hmm. at the opportunity to, study this matrix and and I was kind of looking for the nardis mm. and I thought oh my god they're everywhere this is this is the the how is the fashion not the nardis how what do they think the nardis are something else mm-hmm. and then you enter the world with Neil Thies of 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 the in between of the of the spacing now there's no spaces in the human body obviously this just they're virtual but nevertheless the shaping of us within there's and then you, you know, that, that yeah. to me is so fascinating because I really, having been a sort of interdisciplinary mover in so many different worlds, hmm. that there, there's a different, obviously shaping of the form that comes from different disciplines, but also the the shaping of your life and your choices. And I mean, so it's the the outer representation, perhaps. You know, the way we move shapes the way we move, but the way we're shaped. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Where'd you go? This is the organ of organization that organizes us to organize it, organizing us. What? I know. For those of you that are listening rather than watching this, Michelle just did a head explosion emoji with hands. And on that lovely note, I'm going to say what a pleasure it was to talk with you today. And I just hope this is the beginning of lots more beautiful conversations and maybe some time together in a in a lab somewhere. Yes, please. And moving and <laughs> playing too. <laughs> lots of love and so lovely to meet you. And thank you, Michelle Van Stratton, Many Moons mm-hmm. Yoga for introducing us. It really was a joy to meet you. And I know why she spoke so highly of you. Oh, likewise. I can't wait to meet her in person too, because, you know, the virtual world so far. <laughs> Maybe we'll all come together at the same time. Mm-hmm. Can't wait. Thank God for Zoom. And isn't it difficult? Because it reminds us that we're not actually in the same room. But thank goodness. 
but that can listen. Thank you, Joanne. Thank you, Michelle. <laughs>